Welcome to Highland Church Audio Sermons. Today, March 31st, 2018, we're continuing our series titled Walk This Way from 2 Timothy. Today's sermon, Parting Words, is going to be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. We hope you enjoy. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Thank you so much for the family that you have given to us. Why is Dad giving the guy a blanket? Hold the door for Grandma Jay. Thank you. I got you. I got you. We thank you for the privilege that we have of serving you and to be disciples. I'm so sorry, baby girl. Let's try again, okay? Go ahead and ease it forward. It's okay. Let's go. Come on. I got you. Good job. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. This is, uh, the passage we're looking at this morning is uh, the end of what most people believe is Paul's last letter. He's not going to live much longer after this. He's going to be, he's going to be killed fairly soon. I think Paul is the last of the apostles. Apostle meaning this is someone that God personally called to come serve. Stopped him on the road to Damascus and called him to something better, deeper. But that makes this letter very personal. It makes it emotional. It has some disappointment in it, but it also has great faith in it as well. Some people would look at this passage because it's coming at the very end of the letter as sort of mop-up duty. You know, well, he's just pulling all the little things together and he's saying goodbye to people and you would be wrong. This letter is incredible for its teaching, but when you come to the end, the instruction is very powerful here because Paul speaks from the heart. He does pull some things together at the end, but he does so with such truth. It's very insightful when he comes to the end about life and ministry. I mean, Paul, you find here, is very lonely at this point. He has a feeling of abandonment. He's disappointed by the fact that his friend and his ministry partner, Demas, has walked away from their ministry and just left. He's physically cold. Well, you put all those things together. I mean, think about that. Being in a cell, being in jail for preaching the gospel and having people seemingly abandon you that you really counted on. I mean, you just see how it would be an easy recipe for a depression. And yet... In the middle of all of this, I mean, you really see that his mind is focused in on ministry and that he trusts in God. Now, the passage here will also tell us that Paul expects Timothy, who he's just been writing to and is encouraged, you know, about what he's doing in the ministry there in Ephesus, he's writing to Timothy and encouraging him to leave Ephesus. Now, you'll see that he'll provide a replacement for him, but leave Ephesus and come to Rome. And he wants him to do it before wintertime sets in. Now, I think Paul is calling Timothy to Rome for ministry purposes, not just for his own support. 
I think he's calling him there to do what he can no longer do because he's locked up. He's calling him there to minister to the people, to teach the people, to share the gospel. So let's read through the passage together and we'll see how this all fits together. First, or 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 9. Paul writes and he says, Do your best to come to me soon. Remember I said that he's very close to dying here. For Demas, in love in this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me for ministry. Tychius I have sent to Ephesus, and when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, and also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be proclaimed, fully proclaimed, to all the Gentiles might hear it. And so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come to me before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Now, the passage, I think, here divides into four simple sections here. The first part of it is in the first four verses there, 9, 10, 11, and 12, is the issue here of people. Paul will stop in the first two verses there, in verses 9 and 10, and he's going to mention six people. Now, people matter. I mean, that's what the ministry is all about. I mean, if you've been here at church at all, you realize that we never talk about programs and we don't talk about buildings. I mean, Jesus didn't die for any of those things. He didn't die so that we could have, you know, much expanded program. He didn't die so that we could build some kind of big monolith out there. Jesus died for people. That's what matters. And the truth is, is that working with people can be one of the most amazing things you can ever happen in your whole life. I mean, there's very little as amazing and as rewarding as sharing the gospel with somebody and then seeing them respond. That's, that's awesome. I mean, to see somebody come in and have their life maybe feel like it's completely disordered and then all of a sudden stop and put their trust back into the Lord and begin to follow the book and have their life begin to, to straighten out course-wise and be able to make sense and to feel purposeful. Or to have somebody come in and just feel like their, their marriage is just completely falling apart and they come in and they begin to put themselves into a spot where they'll do exactly what God says and God puts their marriage back together like that. I mean, that's amazing. But people can also be challenging. I mean, I don't know if you knew this or not, but did you know that everybody has an opinion? Sometimes people will actually judge you every single week. Not me, I, I, you know. But you know, honestly, the thing that hurts the most, the biggest challenge 
in ministry is when you start doing ministry and you begin to you really put your life into people and you really begin to build inside of them and then all of a sudden they just leave out of the blue. No good reason. It just wasn't for them anymore. You know, Paul starts off here this passage in verse 9 with a very personal request. Do your best to come to me soon. But then you get to verse 10 and Paul brings up Demas. And I think Paul was hurt by Demas' leaving. The fact that he's the first person mentioned here tells me that he mattered. I mean, if Demas was just some guy that was just out there on the periphery, you know, and kind of flowed in and out of things, he might not even be mentioned here. But, but clearly, Demas is someone that Paul has been counting on. I mean, and it's troubling the fact that he leaves. Perhaps Demas just got tired of living in poverty and being persecuted. I mean... To be honest, I mean, this is a guy that would travel from city to city and going and and starting churches and sharing the gospel. And so very often when he would go, I mean, it wasn't like he was staying at Extended Stay America or Hotel Six. I mean, he's living with a family someplace and he lives by the goodness and the handouts that people were giving them so that they could do ministry. Maybe at some point Demas just said, look, I'm tired of doing that. I want to get my own bed. You know, I don't, want to, I don't want to be involved in that kind of stuff anymore. I don't know. I do know that this is an issue for every single follower of Christ, so to consider. I mean, will I continue to follow and serve even when there are difficult moments? Because I'm going to be honest with you, there are difficult moments in our faith. Jesus said some interesting words. In Luke 19, 23, he said, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow. Here's the thing. Sometimes I have to pick up my cross. And that's not the funnest thing in the world. You know? It just feels like it's wrong. The truth is all of us have heard stories about someone who maybe was either raised in the church or someone that's come and they've been involved in worship and they've been there for a while and all of a sudden they walk away from church and they're just like, they have no sense at all that they're with the Lord at all. We've all heard stories like that. What do you do about that? Well, the truth is you can't be completely sure. One passage that that the... John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, says it like this. He says, those that were not of us, in other words, those that really didn't believe, he says, those that were not of us, they went out from us because they really never were of us. Usually that happens when we face some kind of a difficult moment in life. Like, wow, I mean, this is not really working for me, so I'm going to go try something else. On the other hand, you get examples of people like Peter. Peter who walked with the Lord for three years and all of a sudden on the night that Jesus, you know, gets, gets betrayed and he gets arrested, you know, Peter would come along and would deny the Lord three times to the point that he cussed. And yet, later he feels bad about that. He knew it was wrong. He He kind of puts himself back into a spot and comes back to the Lord and serves God faithfully for a lifetime. The thing is, we just never know. 
I can look at a life and see that someone's serving and I can see their faithfulness and that faithfulness is a sign of assurance. Like, yeah, they're really living this godly Christian life. But if someone just walks away, I don't know. You know, Demas is a guy that's mentioned in the Bible three other times. He's mentioned in Philemon. Paul calls him a fellow laborer there. He's mentioned in Colossians and he's mentioned in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. So this guy's not new to ministry. I mean, what happened to him? Well, maybe, maybe Demas was one of those people that just never really considered the cost. You know, I think there's a lot of people that for better or worse, somehow or other, when someone shared the gospel with them, somehow they took it like, you know what, when I come to faith in Jesus, I'll never have any more problems. Everything will be happy. I'll always see it like it should be and I'll never be told no. I'll be able to do everything that I want to do and that fits my life and, and I'll just, you know, everything will be great and then all of a sudden they come to faith, you know, and all of a sudden they, wait, what do you mean it's not, I can't do this and what do you mean it's like this and what? People do that. That's why I always fear like when we start in and share in the gospel, I mean, you always want to remind people from the very beginning, you do realize that we were dead spiritually and God made you alive for a reason. Not just so you could do anything you wanted to do. Demas maybe was one of those people that just wanted that easy life. Maybe he wanted comfort and maybe he wanted safety and, and ease. I mean, there are so Many people that come along and, and will say things like, you know, yeah, I'm a Christ follower, but you know, I just got to make my money first and then I can go serve the Lord. And all of a sudden then, a life that should have been about all about making a life that was serving the Lord ends up being all about making a living. I can guarantee you at the end of your life that will be shallow. Nobody will care about your pocketbook. But the life that is invested in serving God, in, in, in interacting with other people is a life that is well-lived, a life that has satisfaction, that brings joy, that has purpose. Jeff was telling me a story a couple of weeks back about a man in California that he worked for that was a billionaire. He died. Jeff got a chance to go back and do a funeral. It was him and the guy's wife. No one else showed up because he never made any impact in his life. And yet I've been to funerals for people that you would go and there'd be hundreds of people there and they had nothing. You know why? Because their life was invested in things that mattered. Demas maybe just didn't see it that way. You know, we can only hope that with someone like Demas that he has a change of heart at the end of his life. But Paul keeps going here in verse 10, then he tells us that ministry is going to keep going on. He says here, Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Now, because nothing is mentioned here about those guys abandoning him, I think they were sent out to do ministry. I mean, Titus is kind of an important guy in the scriptures. So, I mean, I think these guys were not there just to serve Paul. Paul's not the kind of guy that needs five people around him like a posse, you know, just to take care of him. He's not that kind of guy. Verse 11, he, he keeps going here and he says, Luke alone is with me. 
Luke, if you don't remember, was actually a, a guy that, that is a Gentile. He's a doctor. Probably Paul saw him somewhere along the line, and as the guy was treating him for his own illness, Paul shares the gospel with him. He responds to the gospel and starts traveling with him to not only take care of Paul, but also to help with the ministry. This would be the guy that would be Paul's assistant. And so when you read the gospel of Luke, you're reading the gospel that was written by Paul's assistant. He says in verse 11, he continues there, he says, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now clearly, again, Paul here is thinking ministry. Mark is a guy that previously had failed. If you were to go back to Acts chapter 13, you'll see that there's a story there that Paul and Barnabas, who had been traveling together doing ministry, had gone into this place, and while they were doing ministry there, persecution heats up on them, and Mark was like, I didn't sign up for this. And he leaves and goes home. Now, in the middle of that, Paul and Barnabas get in this little tiff and creates a separation between the two because Barnabas wants to give him a chance all over again and bring him along when Paul says, I don't think he's ready for that yet, not yet. Now, the cool thing is when Paul wrote the book of Colossians, he mentions that Mark is there with him and so that's one of the coolest things in the world to see someone who's blown it gets a chance to redeem themselves and come back. That's exactly what you see here. Verse 12, he keeps going here, and he says, Tychius, I sent him to Ephesus. This is because, you know, Tychius would have been the guy that would have brought this letter from Paul to Timothy, and when he got there to Ephesus, basically he's handing him the letter saying, you're supposed to go see him. I'll stay here and take care of the church until you're done. I'll pastor this church. And so he's thinking ministry the vast majority of the time. Now, the second thing here you see in verses 13 through 16 is see the challenges of ministry. Look at verse 13. He says, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and also the books and above all the parchments. You know, ministry can be really challenging and you kind of see this here because in verse 13, the first thing he mentions is the cloak. Now, I've never had a cloak. I was trying to think what this really was, and so I had to kind of go back and really look this all up. Basically, if you take an enormous and very thick, you know, uh, um, big blanket and cut a hole in the middle of it and put it over your head, that's a cloak. A cloak would be like a poncho in this case, but in this case, it would go down even past the floor to the point that you would hold it up and you would tie a rope around it so it would stay up and so you wouldn't like be constantly tripping over the whole thing. It was not used as a fashion statement. It was used to stay warm. Now, what does that tell you about his situation? He's cold. Remember I told you this is a challenge? He's cold. He's expecting it's going to get worse. That's why he would say down in verse 21, please come, do your best to come before winter. It's going to get worse. I mean, Paul is a guy that would not have a closet full of coats. He probably didn't have the money to go out and resources to buy a new, new one. He needs this one. He keeps going then in verse 13, and he says he wants the books and the parchments. 
The books here would have been uh, the, the, the earlier New Testament works that were out there, like John's you know, gospel or the works of Peter or, the, or Hebrews. The parchments here would have been the Old Testament scriptures. And I'll tell you what I love about this. Here's a guy that's on his deathbed. I mean, he's months away from dying, and he still wants to be in the Word. That's amazing. So often we think, hey, that's for the younger person to do. No, it's for all of us to know our God better. Verse 14, he says, Alexander the, the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him, verse 15 says, beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. That's an interesting thing he says here. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. That two little, little word phrase there that says did me in English is only one word in Greek. It's edokumai. It means to tell or to reveal in other words, somewhere along the line, this guy went to the Roman authorities and he said, hey, you know how you're supposed to say that there is no one like Caesar, that you're supposed to worship Caesar alone, and that Caesar is our only king? Well, this guy over here, he says that Caesar is not the king. He says that Jesus is. And they threw him in jail. And so Paul gives Timothy a warning and a promise here. The warning is watch out for him. The promise is what's really important. The promise is the Lord will avenge me. Now, I'll tell you why that's important, because to me, that promise is a sign of spiritual maturity. You see, when you and I mature in our faith, vengeance ought to go out the door. It should be just removed from our lives and our vocabularies. You ought to take them off of your hook and put them on God's hook and then keep going in your life, in your ministry. The longer I hold on to vengeance, the longer I'm saying, God, you can't do this. I guess I need to take care of this. Somewhere along the line, I gotta give that up. Trust that God is the one that makes things right, that he'll take care of it. And so in verse 15, he says, beware of him. This guy hates the message. Verse 16, you get this picture again of the hurt that Paul went through, that no one stood with him. Obviously, that hurt. Again, Paul turns it over to the Lord. Now, my thing is, as I started studying, you know, and even this past week, I was thinking about this. Why does Paul tell Timothy this? I think he's asking Timothy to count the cost. I think what he's telling him here is, you know, Timothy, people, which are the very thing that Jesus died for, the people are the very thing that you're out to reach. Some of them are going to be an absolute blessing, and they're going to own that with you, but not all of them. Some will walk. Some will choose their way. Now, the third thing he's going to tell us here in verses 17 and 18, he's going to talk about the faithfulness of God. Look what he says here in verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and that all the, the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now at times, he's saying here is that Jesus will be the only one that will stand by you. But here's the good news, that's enough. Maybe you've had that opportunity before where no one stood with you. He's saying it's enough. 
Now, I think what he does here is it's really kind of a cool thing because between verses 17 and 18, he's going to tell you four things that he's confident about. The first one there in verse 17, he says, the Lord was with me. In other words, no one stood with me but the Lord. The Lord was there. Then he says again in verse 17, he says, even in a Roman court, Paul tells me I had the chance to proclaim the gospel. Verse 18, he realizes that the Lord is the protection of his life. He's saving him from the lion's mouth. Now, don't think here, uh, don't make the mistake here and think, oh, maybe he was worried that he was going to get thrown into, you know, the Colosseum and, you know, get attacked by lions in this case. The Colosseum wasn't even built for another three or four years yet. And by the way, Paul was a Roman citizen. They could not die like that. His death would have been quick. They would have put him in a guillotine and his head would have been chopped off, which is exactly how history tells us that he did die. I think what he's saying here is the same thing that Peter said when he described the evil one attacking. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he says, our enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion looking for someone that he can devour. And the fourth thing he says here in verse 18 is that Paul realizes his ultimate freedom is coming, and it's not freedom from jail. It's freedom from this life. That he will be free, delivered into heaven to be with the Lord. Now, there's a fourth thing. A fourth thing here that really matters here in verses 19 through 22, and that is the importance here of personal relationships. Let me just read you the beginning of this one more time. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained ill at Corinth, or remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. He mentions Eubulus, Pudens, and Linus, and Claudia, and all the, I mean, it's amazing. There's a list of people that Paul dearly cares about, and that tells me that along the way, when you start being involved in a church and, and involved in ministry, you get a chance to build some amazingly deep and great relationships. I mean, if you're involved in a home fellowship or a small group, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. That there are people that actually know what's going on in your life and will pray for you and encourage you and challenge you and walk with you. But if you're outside of that, that may not make sense to you. I love what he says here. He mentions, first of all, Priscilla and Aquila. You know, it would be so easy for us to read past that. But you know, if you were to go over to 1 Corinthians 16, you'll realize that Priscilla and Aquila had a house church. They started a church in their home in Corinth. And God blessed that. And you know what? Paul would have gone there and stayed with them and taught there and ministered to them. And he feels like they are tied together to the point that when it comes to the end of his life, one of the very last things he says is, make sure you remember them. Then he mentions Onesiprus. When I was in Bible college, we used to say one sip Horus, but I don't encourage you to say that. Onesiprus was a, an Ephesian Christian that Acts chapter 19 came alongside Paul and did ministry with him and helped him and, and just served with him. Erastus is ministering there in Corinth. Trophimus had become ill. I mean, he wants to remember that. Hey, there's this guy I love, Trophimus. I had to leave him at Miletus. 
Such an interesting story here in verse 21 too. He mentions Pudens and Claudia. Pudens was a young man that was a Roman. Claudia, her her father was um, the leader of the, the Roman Empire in Britain. She had been sent to Rome to get her education. And a Roman poet at that time actually wrote a story about them, about these two young people that met and fell in love. And yet, here you find them being mentioned in the scriptures as not only did they fall in love with each other, but they fell in love with Jesus and began to serve the Lord. Paul keeps going in verse 21. He mentions this journey that he wants him to come before winter he would have to get with it. That's a four-month journey that would take place over both land and sea. So here's the point. What's Paul trying to say here? As he closes out this letter, what is he saying? He's saying that ministry involves people. And some people will absolutely be a blessing and they will walk alongside of you and they will own it with you and you will be locked arm in arm as you go through life but there will be some that will walk away. And that means ministry was not going to be easy all the time. But the good news is, is that either way, Jesus will stand with you. And along the way, you're going to build some of those amazing relationships with people that truly matters. Now, just to make this practical, what does that mean for us? Well, I'll just say this. If you've never had the chance to experience that type of relationship, that level of relationship where someone really does know what's going on in your life and love you and encourage you and be there for you, people that talk about what's, what's, what's happening in their life, you're missing out. And when those difficult moments come, and they come for everybody, I mean, just because you're a Christian and the flu bug comes through, it doesn't miss you because you're saved. They come for everybody. What gives me the, 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 the ability to stand firm? It's my love for Christ, him standing with me and holding on to me, but it's that group of believers that God puts around me at that moment to surround me and care about me. And so I want to encourage you. What does this mean for us? It means that you need to be thinking about what is your next step spiritually. And your next step, if you're not there is you need to get involved in a small group someplace. You need to find a group of people that will walk with you, that know what's going on in your life, that care about you, that will hold tightly to your secrets, that will be there when you need them. I would encourage you that that there's a card there that's in the seat in front of you. You can fill that out and drop it in the box and someone will call you or you you could go and stop by that big round thing, you know, Info Central that we call it back in the lobby and tell them, hey, I need to get in a small group or you could go online. But here's the point. You need that depth of relationship in your life. A savior who loves you and a group of people that will walk beside you. This morning... We're going to take communion. And I'm going to ask the people that are going to serve us, if you would go ahead and and grab the communion stuff and begin to bring those down and share those with us. And and as they pass those around, would you just take the cups? There's two cups actually together, one inside of the other, and hold on to that, and we'll take that all together. And while they're doing that, let me just explain a little bit about communion for you. 
On the night that Jesus, the night before he died, the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus had his disciples in an upper room. And he wanted to give them an illustration about what he was prepared to do for them. And so he took bread and he broke it and he began to pass it around and he told them, this bread is representative. It's an illustration of my body getting broken for you. And then he took a cup and he passed that cup around. And he says, you know, every time you do this, every time you drink this cup, because that cup would have had red wine in it and it was reminding them of his blood being shed. He says, I want you to remember the fact that there was a time that I shed my blood for you. And so, as Christians, we do this because we are commanded to stop in our lives at, at, at regular basis, in regular timing, to remember the Lord's death until he comes. Now, if you're a believer, you ought to be taking communion. If you don't believe that story, if you don't believe that Jesus died for you, I'm going to encourage you, this probably won't mean anything to you. But here's the thing. In doing this, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we're supposed to examine our lives and to be sure that we are right with God at that moment. This is not something you just take because the people around you are taking, but I'm supposed to make sure that my heart is completely submitted to the Lord. There's nothing between he and I that I'm ready spiritually to do what God wants me to do. And so as we sing, you make sure that your heart's ready and we'll come back together in a moment and we'll take this together. The night before he died, Jesus took bread. We've got that one in the the cup that's under the bottom. He broke it. He passed it around. He asked them to do this in remembrance of him. That's what we do even now. The other cup, the cup that had the juice in it, was Jesus' reminder to his disciples and to all of us who bear his name, Christian little Christ, that he shed his blood for us. Father, we pray that our hearts would be right before you, that we would remember your sacrifice in our lives. And we love you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, as you go out, serve God. This is what you were built for, Christian. This is what you were saved for. But just with a sense of sobriety, will you recognize the fact that not all of it's going to be easy? That's why the Lord will stand with you. And that's why you need to develop these relationships so that someone will stand with you in this life. God bless you. I love you all.